I'll be reading for us from Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. You can follow along as I read Amos chapter 5. I'll begin in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, do not enter to Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it's an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light with gloom and no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope you're not one of them. Some people read their Bibles like they worked for a fortune 
cookie company. They flip around the pages looking for a catchy phrase, something to motivate them or fill in a birthday card. And then they stumble into something like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. They think, well, there it is, my pithy little saying. Not realizing that one of the all things that verse in particular is talking about is enduring abject poverty. How do I know that's one of the all things that Paul's talking about there? Well, I read the verses around it. Just listen. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, the apostle is saying it takes spiritual strength and maturity to handle poverty. It also takes spiritual strength and maturity to handle wealth. But if you think Philippians 4.13, I can do all things, it makes for a good tattoo to inspire your morning workouts or works like a magic ma- mantra that you just recite a bunch of times when you run up your credit cards or hangs on your wall as some kind of fortune cookie motivational poster, then you have missed the point of that verse entirely. And if that's the way you're reading your Bible, grasping for slogans, you will never understand a book like Amos. Here's a book in your Bible that's written to a particular people at a particular time with a particular message. And you've got to read the whole thing. You've got to read the whole thing over and over again to get to what we would call the them then. What did it mean to them, the target audience, then at the time in which they received it? Until you can answer that question, you've got no business extrapolating what you think it means to you now. You get to the them then, and now you begin to see what the principles of God's word are, and you can begin to apply them to the you now. If you're reading Amos looking for a fortune cookie... You'll probably be disappointed, Uh, there's not many here, and you'll certainly miss the whole message of the book, and therefore you'll never rightly understand why this book is in your Bible and how it is to apply to you today. Last Sunday night, I took a survey and the people spoke. And so in response to that survey, uh, I asked the question, would it be helpful to kind of just look at the whole book in one sermon? And everybody put their hands up. So I took that as a yes, and that's precisely what we're going to do. We're not going to read all nine chapters, but we want to get to what is the message of Amos. And, and fundamentally, what I'm really aiming for is how should we live tomorrow? How should we live this afternoon? How should we live immediately after we hear that message? And so this is kind of an effort of reinforcement, if you will. But let's begin with the target, all right? Who is this book written for? Remember, it's by a prophet, and he's directing his message to a certain people. Who are those people? We find a hint of it in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. 
So these are words he sees concerning Israel. What time? In the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And that earthquake is going to be mentioned several times or alluded to many times throughout his prophecy. But Amos begins his actual words to the people in Israel with a little bit of psychological warfare. <laughs> he, he doesn't start by addressing them. Remember that? Uh, he begins by saying, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Damascus, okay. We're going after the Syrians. Uh, uh, one, chapter 1, verse 6, it's Gaza, the, the Philistian area. Uh, chapter 1, verse 9, Tyre, that little island off the coast of Israel. Edom, chapter 1, verse 11. Ammon, chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, get to chapter 2, verse 1, it's Moab. And then that's, that's six nations he's gone to. And then he gets finally to the seventh. And we know, because we've read our Bibles enough, that that number seven is often, uh, it was just a way that the culture communicated a, a sense of completeness. So in our culture, it might be 10, like a 10 out of 10. In that culture, you would probably say a seven out of seven. I don't know how these things develop, but that's what it is. And in, so you're expecting when he gets to seven, that's the, that's the target. This has all been going to number seven. Who's number seven? Chapter two, verse four. Uh, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and for four. So we think, oh, he's, he's, he's up here in the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel's up top. Judah's below. He's from Judah. He goes up there and look, he's going after Judah. Good. Oh, let's get the popcorn. Let's listen to what he's going to say. But then you get to verse 6, Amos chapter 2, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. And we're shocked here because now he's gone to an eighth nation. By doing that, this is what I mean by psychological warfare. He's, he's sort of lured everybody in the northern kingdom in by condemning all the surrounding nations and even condemning Judah. And you think there, okay, good, we're good. And then he turns his sights on you. Israel is the target of his message. Why is, why is he there? Well, because of their crime. This is the second thing. What is their crime? The crime of Israel might be summarized in this way. Social injustice covered up by faux religion and wildly unrighteous living. What do I mean by social injustice? This is Amos chapter 2, verse 6, again, middle of the verse, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Now, as we go through Amos, we realize that the majority of the people in Israel are fabulously wealthy. This is one of the most prosperous times in Israel's history. And the message of Amos is he's going after them and saying, but you've accumulated all that wealth by harming the poor, the needy, the marginalized, the weak. So that's what he says here, right? The, the needy, the poor, and the afflicted. And what's worse is you're covering up your, your social injustices with faux religion. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. This in all likelihood refers to temple worship. And, and then they're un, just incredibly unrighteous living. Verse 8, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. 
So in this first summary, Amos is laying out why God has sent Amos to, to inform everybody in Israel that God is going to judge the nation. God is judging them based on their behavior. Based on their what? Based on their behavior. Not what they think about God, not what they say about God. God's looking at how they live. Friend, God judges similarly today. He's looking at how you live. And in this case, the people of Israel don't act like their God. Their actions don't match the way a believer, a follower in God should live. And there are these two broad categories of disobedience, justice and righteousness. Justice simply means doing what is fair, what is right. And righteousness means doing what is right and good. Ethan the Ezraite wrote in Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness and justice are what define part of the, or partly define the nature of God. God is righteous. All he does is right. God is just. All he does is just. And as people who have been made in the image and after the likeness of that God, we are to live, we're to be like him, and we're to be like him in these particular ways. Remember, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, therefore, Ephesians 5 verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Just like your child, I watched some of them, they're kind of like you parents. You may not think they are, but they are. They, they not only they look like you, they just, they got your funny little mannerisms, everything. You didn't know you had funny little mannerisms, but you do. And, and, and they're just like you. And in a similar way, you're to be like God. You're to copy him. So when God saved Israel, all 12 tribes, out of their slavery in Egypt, what did he do? He gives them his law. He takes them to Mount Sinai and he gives them his law. What is that law for? That law is telling them, here is how to live a just and righteous life. And here are the things to do when you fail at that. And then he takes them and he plops them down into that promised land and, and he says to them, now live this way, live my way, live like me, live justly, live righteously. But eventually, the nation splits into two, right? Two tribes down in the south, ten tribes to the north. Judah at the bottom, Israel up top. And that northern kingdom, which is called Israel, abandons living like God. They stop living like God. They're not representing God in the world. And it's so obvious and it's so despicable that God, through the prophet Amos, actually invites the foreign nations to come and settle in on the mountain there so they can see how bad it is. Chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. So make an announcement in Philistia, make an announcement in Egypt, your two greatest enemies of the people of God. And say to those people, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, that's in Israel, and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They don't know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. 
Come, foreign nations, look at the tumults. What are tumults? Tumults are the chaos, is the chaos that's created by sin. And then look at their strongholds. What do they have in their strongholds? Unrighteous acts, the fruit of unrighteous acts, the fruit of their oppression of the weak and the marginalized. And the result of all of that, and they got really big, fat bank accounts. Bank accounts that are about to get plundered by God. And just to be clear, remember as we go through, as we went through Amos, that this, he's not just targeting the primary agents of this evil. There are no excuses for those who profit from these injustices in a secondary way, like family members of Russian oligarchs. They can't claim innocence. They, they're, they're not the primary agent, perhaps, of unjust gain and unrighteous acts, but they bear their guilt. And Amos speaks to the wives of the Israelite oligarchs as though they were bulging bovine. And he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Their incessant demands for more wine spur their husbands on in their evil works. And so the husbands keep cheating the poor and taking advantage of the weak. And God says, you wives are complicit in those crimes, even though you're not the ones out there paying off judges and cheating the poor. And this constant doing of injustice and unrighteousness This is what what Amos just keeps going back to again and again and again. Chapter 5, verse 7. Oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Chapter 6, verse 12. You've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. It's because the people of Israel refuse to live like their God, whose the foundation of his throne is what? Righteousness and justice. It's because they're refusing to live like him that God is going to punish them. Now they get that message and we would say, well, why are you so committed to that dead end? That takes us to number three, the motivation. Friends, money can kill you. If you love it. First Timothy chapter six, verse 10. For listen carefully, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving, through this lusting after money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's 1 Timothy 6.12. No wonder Jesus and so many of the biblical authors warn against the temptation of loving money, of hoarding money, and of just existing for money. Money is a terrible fake God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you 
nor forsake you. That's maybe one of those slogan verses we like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. (laughs) But it is set in the context of money. Keep your life free from the love of money because I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why would you live for a fake God when the real one is right there with you, Israel? If you fall prey to the lust for money, you're going to find yourself willing to do terrible things in order to get more money. Go to Amos chapter 5, where I already read. Remember, they trample on the poor. They exact taxes of grain from them. This is verse 11. And then he says to them, with all of your exaction of the poor and and your trampling of of the weak, You've built houses from hewn stone. Remember, like that's just not how people typically live. Like this is exorbitant wealth. You've built those houses, but you won't live in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know, this is the Lord speaking to them, I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who, what? Afflict the righteous who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. The people Amos was warning loved what their cheating and their defrauding got them. It got them money. It got them wealth. It got them big houses. And and when their impoverished victims go to court to get justice from these oppressors, these rich oppressors just use their money to bribe the judge. And when the poor are trying to feed their families from the land they're renting from the rich, the rich just take the best of the crops for themselves. Sorry, you lose. In other words, instead of advocating for and helping the poor, they take advantage of the poor and make the situation of the poor even worse. Also, they can have a bigger home, bigger parties, bigger dinner. Chapter 6, verse 4, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out. Remember, fall over the edges of their couches. Eat lambs from the flock, unheard of. Calves from the midst of the stall. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. Who drink wine in bowls, excessive, and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. You got your big houses and you got your big parties and you got your big stuff going on and you're content, 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 and you're not grieved over the spiritual state of your own household, let alone the spiritual state of the country in which you live. Their real God is wealth. Their real God is prosperity. Their real God is money. They don't really care about God. They don't care about God's people. They want comfort. You want comfort? This is one of the reasons I wanted to preach Amos. We live in prosperity, and frankly, it's really easy to write off certain activists, groups, opinions that might be sort of highlighting how our consumption is making the lives of the global poor difficult. Frankly, I'm I'm not interested in comparing us to activists or groups. I'm interested in comparing us to God. And I just, I want to get Amos in, 
into who we are so that we're making sure that we're not excusing our lavish existence if it's harming others. Because brothers and sisters, that's exactly what Israel was doing. They were excusing their sins and refusing to see how it harmed others. So this, this issue is, it's not as simple as being a left-leaning or a right-leaning Christian when it comes to matters of public policy. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm trying to confront us with is whether or not we're acting like God. You remember that time Joshua, who was uh, under Moses, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, and he's about to march around Jericho, and uh, before he goes, one evening he looks up, and there's the angel of the Lord, probably the pre-incarnate Jesus, with a drawn sword. And so Joshua walks up to him and says, hey, are you on our side, are you on their side? And the angel of the Lord, do you remember what he answers? No. (laughs) He says, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. You on our side? No, I am my own being. Your job is to follow me, not get me on your side. Brothers and sisters, God is not artillery for you to weaponize in your socio-political debates. He is God. He's your savior. And he expects his people to act like him. What concerns God is to concern us. And so you want to be really, really sure that you're not presumptuously reading your own opinions into God. That's getting everything reversed. The goal is to listen. Better, the goal is to do what Joshua did, fall down and worship. So the really, really big question that we have to answer is this. Is God still concerned that we do justice and righteousness? And I will answer yes, and I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, God does not change. The foundation of his throne remains righteousness and justice. That probably should be enough. But number two, just consider the New Testament ethic of love. I'm going to read to you from 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against his brother, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, 
but in deed and in truth. Seems pretty clear to me that that means you and I are to do righteousness, to do justice to one another, to our fellow Christians. That's why we send meals to help those in need. It's, it's why we provide drives for people. It's why we bring people into our homes. It's, it's why we give our money when people are in need. We say, all right, we're going to do justice. We're going to do righteousness to one another. That's the New Testament ethic of love. But what about all the other people in the world? Am I responsible to do justice and righteousness to everybody outside of this church community? Well, listen to how Jesus answered that question for you. This is from Luke chapter 6, verse 32. I wonder sometimes what it was like to just be sitting there when he said this for the first time. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you ex- from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But, but, love your enemies. And do good. And lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. What's Jesus saying? Be like God in the world. He is kind. To be kind means to perform acts of service to another person. Be merciful. Do what spares suffering in the lives of other people. Are you like God? Are you kind? Are you merciful to even the ungrateful and the evil? That's the question. And it's a way better question than getting some list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. The question that we as believers and followers of God need to be asking is this, am I acting like God with my annoying neighbors? Are you acting like God toward that family member who keeps making bad choices and exploding their life? Are you showing the same kind of attention your God does to the weak and the marginalized that are around you? I I love the thought of our country making the practice of abortion a thing of the past. I am pro-life, I am pro-adoption, I am pro-helping people who are experiencing an unintended pregnancy and are tempted toward the taking of that child's life. 
That is why I love to pray for. That's why I love to support. That's why I give my own personal money to the Pregnancy Care Center. But even more than that, I want women who have had an abortion and now regret that decision to find forgiveness and mercy and love in this church. And I want women who choose to keep their babies to find that this church is going to sacrifice their money, their space to help care for those women and their babies, whether or not those people ever profess faith in Jesus. These are not political things. They are justice things, doing all we can and love to protect the lives of those who cannot protect themselves. They are righteousness things, caring for, providing for new parents parents and their baby and helping them to get going in life. That's what Israel was to be doing. Israel should have realized that's how people who follow God are to live. After all, what had God done for them? Chapter 2, verse 10. It was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What had God done for them? Chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God is the one who saved them. God is the one who gave them all that they needed in order to prosper. God is the one who entered into covenant relationship with them. Has he done that for you? You bet he has if you're a follower of Jesus. And people who have been saved by God... When you, when, you, when you get dunked under that water, you're making a public statement saying, I'm going to seek to live according to God, according to God's character and God's ways. People who live like the rest of the world cannot claim to be saved by God. And living like God in a fallen world means by definition, that you will be pushing against the values and the ideals of the space in which we live. The whole culture, whether it's Sri Lankan or Syrian or Swedish, is going to be pointed in another direction, all at varying degrees of intensity depending on where you are and where you're at in history. But you are called to act like God. You are called to reflect his justice and his righteousness in the world. All my time, my time of study in Amos, I keep thinking about Job. Remember what the Lord said about Job when Satan comes and appears before God? Where have you been? Running to and fro over the face of the earth, causing trouble. <laughs> so that, I added that part. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Blameless and upright are basically synonyms for justice and righteousness. And when Job makes his final appeal to God in, in that long book of Job where he's, he's, you know, the back and forth with the three friends and he, he gets the final word and chapter 31, what is he doing when he's, when he's, pointing out to God his righteousness. He's not saying he's sinless. He's saying I'm, I'm blameless. That's a different category. He's done everything a man should do. When I sin, I make sacrifices, but I'm seeking to live a righteous and a just life. And when he's defending that righteousness and justice in chapter 31, what does Job say? I fed the poor. I helped the widows. I provided for the orphans. I clothed the needy. I housed the homeless. And I protected those who've been marginalized to the extreme. Doing justice begins with the people who are right in front of you. 
It costs, it inconveniences, it doesn't get you an easy life. Think Good Samaritan. It's interesting to me that in the broader culture today, a lot of the things that we are concerned about, the broader culture applauds. But just because the world approves doesn't make it good and right. That's a moving target. God determines what is good and right. There are lots of other things that God tells us to do in order to reflect his righteousness and his justice toward the most neglected that will actually put you in opposition to the broader culture. The world's going to hate it. And you know what? That's just fine too. Just because the world does not approve of something does not make it bad. God determines what is good and right, which means you and I need to be doing all the stuff God says, all the stuff the culture likes and all the stuff the culture hates. It just needs to be the stuff that God tells us to do. And that means you better buckle up, Christian, because the culture often labels something as bad that God decrees as good, like defending the life of the unborn. Are you going to seek to be like God and to do justice even when it's going to cost you a promotion at work or maybe your job? I I don't like bringing that one up because I feel pretty job secure in that category. Like nobody's going to come and, you know, you know what I mean. But a lot of you are facing it. You're facing it. We pray for you every weekday morning as a staff. That's one of the things we're praying. Make, make them strong. Make them strong at work today, faithful. Amos warns us there's ways we can really mess this up. Basically, it's claiming to be followers of God but not practicing righteousness. So this is number four, the deception. God, God is no fool and he's not fooled. He looks at some fools and he says, carry on with your folly, fools. <laughs> He tells those hypocrites in Israel to keep on with their fake worship. It's sarcasm there in chapter 4, verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Why does he tell them to carry on with their false worship? Well, as we'll see, because it's too late for them. He sent Amos to tell them as much. All their offenses have piled up against them. So in chapter 5, look at chapter 5, verse 21. Amos says to the people, God says to the people of Israel through Amos, I hate, I despise your feasts, this is 521, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And when we read that, we should be saying, well, why? Uh, why Why are these things of no account to God? I mean, isn't this the way they're supposed to deal with sin, to offer sacrifices, to keep the law, to worship him? Sure, if you're doing the whole law, as expressed in verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You can't have both. You can't abandon justice and righteousness and continue on with your worship services. Their religion is all fake. And and the proof is in what they're actually thinking while they're singing their hymns. Chapter 8, hear this, this is chapter 8, verse six, four, verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be over that we may offer wheat for sale? 
there is a fountain, yeah, blah, 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 but oh man, I can't wait for work tomorrow. Simply reinforces what we've been pointing out all along. Actions speak louder than words. And Amos is an instrument of God's mercy to us because we would so easily fake things with God. We're pretty good at faking things with each other. And for some reason, we think we've got God duped. You know, the one who sees all things and knows all things. (laughs) God doesn't send prophets today. He's put you in a church instead. You have one another and a Bible. We're not secret police, but we look at each other's lives. And when our lives are living consistently out of line with the scriptures, what do we do? We call one another back. That's a prophetic ministry if there is one. We're calling one another back to live in line with the scriptures. That's one of the many reasons I am totally convinced that meaningful membership in a local church is vital to your spiritual thriving. I've just seen in so many cases that so-called Christian community just erodes into a shell of what it was intended to be. People end up wearing the label with no reality. In Amos' day, the people were trying to keep the name of Yahweh while shutting down the message of Yahweh. Chapter 2, verse 12, you made the Nazarites drink wine, commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. And eventually, the people in Israel got exactly what they wanted. Chapter 8, verse 11, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I'll send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There's no wonder that in our country there's all kinds of church buildings that are a hollow shell of what they used to be. Good Christian people who invested their money, their blood, sweat, and tears to put up those buildings that now house a few odd ducks who sing to Mother Earth and promote a perverse sexual ethic and wear funny robes. I go to them sometimes on my vacations just to remind me. If you start giving a pass to ungodly actions, God may very well give a pass to your church. That takes me to number five, the punishment. In chapter four, God reminded Israel through Amos of all the ways he'd attempted to get them to change their ways. Famine, drought, crop failure, pandemics, early deaths. Yet you did not return to me. Amos told Israel of the time God was going to send locusts to consume their crops. But Amos prayed and the Lord relented. That's chapter seven, verse three. Down in chapter seven, verse six, he told them about the time God was gonna send fire from heaven to consume them. But again, the prophet prayed and God relented. So it's no wonder that after all these warnings and suspended judgments, that God finally says, enough. We've seen a lot of that judgment through our study, but look at chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster is never going to overtake us. And it seems like that's all the message of Amos contains until you get to the very end. Number six, the hope. Verse 14 of chapter 9. On that same day, 
I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That blessed hope that we saw last week, the hope that on the same day God judges the world, ultimately he will also bless the true people of God ultimately. The blessed day when God is going to make all things right forever, which takes me to number seven. Ah, number of completion. (laughs) Your need. Let me take you right back to chapter five, which I read earlier, verse four. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Verse six, seek the Lord and live. That's where I choose to end. Have you sought God first of all? You heard some testimonies today of people who maybe kind of thought they sought God, but then later on came to see that they hadn't. And God graciously opened their eyes. Has God been working in your own soul, been making you consider where you stand with him? I wonder if Amos had something Isaiah wrote in his mind when he wrote these words. Isaiah said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Can I just tell you, friend, that's, a, that's an incredible thing. God, whom you've offended with your sins, is, a, is saying to you, I am willing to pardon you. I'm willing to, I'm, I'm willing to pass over all your sins and give you grace so that you will be in right standing with me for the rest of your life. That's incredible. You're a young person sitting there and you're thinking, I, you, you know, you're listening to testimonies and you're thinking, I, I, I think I'm following the Lord. Are you following the Lord? Are you sure? Have you been baptized? Seek the Lord and live. Call upon him while he's near. He's near. If, if you're not a Christian yet, all you're currently doing is piling up your offenses against God. You're making a, a cleaner case for your guilt. And so you, there's no way to erase all the bad things you've done, you see. The only hope is pardon. The only hope is to take all that mess of your sins and your life and bring those to the Savior and look to the Savior and say, can I make an exchange here? I'll give you all of my sin, not just the ones I've already committed, but all the ones I'm going to commit. I'll give you all of that. And would you please give me your perfect life? That's remarkable. But Jesus, to that honest request, always answers yes every time. He'll answer yes to you if you come to him. Then he sets you off to live that righteous and just life. Now, Christian friend, he's called you to things here. This is the last call, all right, from Amos. Seek good. This is Amos 5, verse 14. And not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil 
and love good and establish justice in the gate, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. You see, we've read our Bibles enough to know that God is like that. He is really, really quick to extend forgiveness, to extend grace, to extend help. And so if you're making your way through Amos and getting a sense that I'm not living a righteous and just life, God is here and he's very willing to just give grace, tons of grace as you choose to obey him and live like him in the world. Going to do that? It's a good way to live, friend. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So there's Amos. Not a fortune cookie. However, he has provided a way for you to live that will please the Lord. May God make it so. Let's pray together. So Father, seal the words and the message of this text to our hearts. Do good in us, we pray. And make it all real. Let there be no faking. Help us to live what we know is true. We ask in the name of our Savior. Amen.